from Melbourne and Minneapolis. This is for Christ's sake. Chapter 13. Hastily, Carr sat down in a chair and gulped back the rest of his drink. Hello and welcome to the show. Uh, my name is Hugh, your name is Hunter. This show's name is, uh, for Christ's sake, mm. we are continuing our, uh, at some point, ending journey through the oeuvre of Michael Crichton. <laughs> ending only through us finishing it or one of our deaths. Yep. And uh, we are just past the midway point of the seemingly endless second novel um, <laughs> published under the name John Lange, which is actually pronounced basically John Lang. We've been mispronouncing uh, Michael Crichton's pseudonym all this time. Ah, and that's the sort of like hard-hitting research you can expect to find on uh, for Crichton's sake. Speaking of research, why did he opt for this particular pseudonym? What, what was the uh, reasoning behind the surname, at least. Well, uh, he named it after a British uh, folklorist named Michael Long, right? Or Michael Lang. Yeah. Who, and Crichton said that he wanted to give the book uh, a sort of fairy tale esque atmosphere, which, uh, oof. <laughs> uh, I can't say uh, I, I ever would have landed on that particular choice of adjective. Describing nope. this book or on or uh, odds on, um, I would say like uh, uh, a sadist, Shit. a sadist masquerade uh, spy fantasy. So that'd be the first couple of uh, yeah. adjectives I'd uh, I'd go for, and then yeah, shit would shit would eventually get on there. Um, a fairy tale is not something I would think of immediately, but you know, um, as the best sort of commentary on their own work, uh, consulting with an author's you know, brain, their thoughts, their words, uh, can allow you to open up new avenues of dissection when you're reading a novel, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that going forward, we should try to keep Crichton's desire to create this fairy tale atmosphere in mind, and perhaps that'll lead to a new appreciation of this uh, particular tone. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure it will. So, you, um, I'm looking through the uh, webcam that I've installed at your house without your knowledge, and it seems like that you're not alone there. Indeed, I am not, because the dry spell is over. We are back, baby, joined by our uh, four other co-hosts. Mm. Me with my blood-red uh, port. <laughs> Bet you're psyched to be drinking that again. And my bowl of, um, my bowl of home-brand pretzels. Mm. And you with your what? I've got a blood orange screwdriver and a bag of salt and vinegar potato chips. Mm. 
I'm going to take a sip now. My first sip since the last time I drank this on air. Me too. How appetizing was it? It's not improved. Mm. Does not uh, improve with age, apparently. Just like you. Let's take a bite of pretzel. Mmm. It's all in the family. Mmm. <laughs> Alright, do you now that we've resolved the question of our four other hosts? Mm hmm I think we need to resolve another question, namely, what has happened in this book with the title Scratch One so far before this chapter? Chapter 13. Okay, so, Roger Carr, our hero, uh, a mild-mannered, slightly cheeky lawyer, has travelled to Nice in the south of France to secure a villa on behalf of a governor, right? Normally I, I would have described him as young, but warning as we did in the last chapter that he's 37. That doesn't seem like yeah, an not, appropriate not exactly young. adjective. Unfortunately for Mr. Carr, he has been mistaken for an international assassin who has been tasked with assassinating uh, an evil organization that is trying to stop an arms deal between Sweden and Israel hmm. that various Western governments want to go ahead. Those Western governments being at least the UK, France and America. Mm -hmm. So there's these, these, these two rival factions, and uh, both of them have made the mistake at various points of believing Mr. Carr is in fact Mr. Morgan. And um, what happened immediately preceding this chapter? What event did we leave off with? Uh, so he, he, met, he met a lovely young woman named Anne, a lovely young Australian lass. Well, young, sort of. She's like 29 or something like that. She's in her 20s. That's young to me, not to you. <laughs> Well, you're, you're an old uh, bastard. Sal. Yeah, you're Sal. Yeah, so he met, he met this lovely young Australian girl, woman, lady, and he has fallen head over heels. He is bewitched by her. He doesn't even care if they fuck, right? He just loves being in her presence, which is unusual for Mr. Carr. Because normally Mr. Carr, only the only thing he thinks about is his little penis. That's right. Previously, women were just disposable to him, but Anne is very much not that. Mm, and why is that exactly? I think it's their uh, witty, witty uh, repartee. Yes. They have chemistry. Yeah. But like sort of the chemistry that, you know, like, oh, you added too much of one element and it made a poison gas cloud that killed everyone. A mustard gas romance. Yeah. That's how I describe it. Just fitting um, because, uh, wait, wait, famously... Uh, the armies of France used mustard grass in World War One. There you go. And um, she has been a little bit um, cagey about her business in Cannes. I wouldn't say she's been cagey about her business in Cannes, because she admits that she's like a dancer at one of the casinos, right? Just the specifics of her arrangement. There's, there's something more that she's not telling Carr about. Why she can't leave. And we've been speculating that she has some ties to uh, one of these uh, nefarious organizations that we've been introduced to. Mm. Do we need to say anything more? Like Lissau, the evil bad guy, head of the French Algerian organization, 
has tried to capture Carr via his henchman Brower on numerous occasions and it hasn't really panned out. And the last thing that happened was that he sent him the finger of some guy he met in a hotel room. Yes, who was attempting to broker information about the deal. Yes, thinking that Carr was the assassin. You know, I have to admit, I was kind of excited to read this chapter because um, uh, I, I was hoping that we'd finally get a little like plot moment of, you know? Because it seemed like finally one of the like mistaken identity things would be resolved and we could just move on with the story, right? Yep. Um, which does happen, surprisingly enough. Um, so Carr does what any, uh, I think, sensible person in a foreign country does when confronted with a uh, detached finger and attempts to call the consulate. He sets up a meeting, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, then hurries on over there, and there's finally uh, a meeting between him and the head of the consulate. Uh, his name is Corman. Mm-hmm. And then they talk for a really long time about uh, not much. They do a lot of uh, recapitulation of the story thus far. <laughs> um, but uh, finally, Gorman is able to determine that Carr is not Morgan, which is great. Yes, and this is where we also get the revelation that um, Carr has bears a strong physical resemblance to Morgan. So it wasn't just the fact that he was an American traveling on the same flight into Nice. He also apparently looked like this Morgan fellow. Mm. And uh, so initially when he meets with Gorman, Gorman assumes he's had some sort of minor plastic surgery to slightly disguise his features or something. Or, or he will PS, as those in the biz call it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and then uh, Gorman gets on the phone with Amory, Mm. who we last heard from in England uh, speaking to Morgan himself, right? That's the same guy? Uh, yeah, sure. I don't remember. I think so. I think that's where he was from. They discussed the fact that there is this American who has been mistaken for Morgan, who is not actually in the country after all, and they come to the conclusion, or I think it's Amory's idea, he's like, well, this is good for us because that will take the heat off the real assassin that we'll be sending in. Yes, uh, I do think there are two little details that your excellent summary brushed over, rightfully. Mm. Mm. One is that we learned that Morgan is, in fact, still in London. Yeah. Why, though? I don't know. Because it's only supposed to be delayed for one day. Yeah. yeah and it's been more than that, but it hasn't, it hasn't um, that has not been revealed. It's been like a fucking week. <laughs> it's, been an it's been an eternity. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but two, at the end of Gorman's discussion of this little plan, we get a titular line. I know, yes, yes. I was um, going to mention that too. I mm. highlighted that. God, how long does this scene go for? It goes for like ten pages. Finally, we, we learn why this book is titled Scratch One. Mm. Does the explanation make it a good title? What is the explanation? Why is it called Scratch One? <clears throat> Well, I think I can just read the uh, offending sentence aloud. Let's do it. Let's enter into a segment of For Crying Out Loud. He's writing and proud. Come on, let's hear it right about now. For crying out loud. Um, so, just to give a little, uh, some contextual information. This is after Carr has departed and Gorman is sitting in his office thinking about uh, the fact that he's potentially set Carr up to die at the hands of the nefarious associates. Yep. He sighed again, 
Scratch one nice, confused American, he thought. He picked up the finger and looked at it again, noticing the clean way it had been severed. The work of a scalpel, for sure. So there you go. There we go. Scratch one nice, confused American. Uh, you know what? I sure wish that I could scratch one. Uh, or this particular nice, confused American, quote-unquote nice. I, I don't know how much... It, it would please me to know and to watch Roger Carr get uh, killed in this novel. I mean, I know yeah, that I, I agree. It, it wouldn't fit, but uh, I think it would be amusing. Um, so from there, we whip around to the uh, prearranged dinner date between uh, Carr and... Um, uh, I've already forgotten her fucking name. And Ann Chitterden. They're in a dance club. That's it. There is a funny sentence in here that I, I thought I might read a, or a funny description of her dancing uh, that I thought might warrant reading, but it might not either. As in Anne was doing the monkey with a vengeance, whipping her pelvis in a precise, exciting way. <laughs> exactly. Mm. I just thought the uh, idea of... <laughs> Just whipping her pelvis in a precise, exciting way, I thought was uh, very, like, odd. It's obviously trying to describe something that's very, you know, passionate and emotional and, you know, erotic to some degree. But it just sounds so detached, you know, when you put it in words like that. A detached pelvis. Mm. It seems like some, uh, the, the work of someone who was uh, perhaps trained in the medical arts. I think, I think if you read that sentence um, in Michael Crichton's voice... I think we'd have a better understanding of uh, where he's coming from. Uh, should, I, should I do that? You should. Okay. <clears throat> In a new segment we like to call... Crichton <laughs> <laughs> for Crichton Out Loud. <laughs> it's, it's instead of for Crichton Out Loud, it's just Crichton Out Loud. Crichton Out Loud. Across from him on the dance floor, Anne is doing the monkey with the vengeance, whipping her pelvis in a precise, exciting way. See, that's perfect. That fits. <laughs> I understand. And uh, then we cut to a character we haven't seen in quite some time. Mm. Um, since possibly uh, chapter one? Yeah, I think since the almost the opening like section of the book. Yeah. We cut to someone whose name is Victor Jenning, who um, we last saw... Uh, him and his customized motor vehicle getting blasted um, by a gun that failed to actually uh, land the killing blow on him. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's important to note that that car is the uh, source of both of our signature drinks. Because it was a, a blood red color. So, I mean, you, that was your specific motivation, the color of his car. I chose blood red just because so many people were getting murdered in the opening pages. <laughs> Um, that's why you're as sophisticated and I am a Nimrod. You're a Dookie and I'm a Nimrod. Yeah. Um, no, other way around. Yeah, um, you're a Dookie. I know, I, I realized that halfway through saying it. I was like, damn, I ruined the joke. I'm going to say it again for the edit, maybe. <laughs> because, wait for it, because. No, you're, Yeah. Yeah, I'm a Nimrod do and you're a... No, no, I did it wrong again. No. Yes, you're a Nimrod and I'm a Dookie. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, you're a chocolate starfish. So that may be the case, but what is Victor Jenny uh, getting up to? 
So Victor Jenning is consulting with some mechanics about the state of his racing vehicle, mm. which he is preparing to utilize in some sort of Grand Prix. Mm. And he has a couple of bodyguards with him. Um, Crichton, the narrator, explains that uh, he's an arms dealer, which we already knew, I think. Yeah. But he likes racing on the side. That's about it. And he's a, he's a good driver, but he's not a great driver. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Uh, and then there's like sort of a weird transition, which I assume was supposed to, there's supposed to be a uh, like section break, but I didn't, it didn't translate to our copy of the book. I was very confused at first. So this was how uh, section is hardly worth mentioning. Because uh, all he does is like, ah, oh, we should get the American. That's what I said the last six times I was in this book. Okay, goodbye. It it's establishes the fact that he has two strategies for securing the American. That's one all. that we've heard, which is Brower, another one we have um, not heard. Presumably involving Anne is my assumption. Uh, and there's one thing I highlighted here, which is a lay grenadine. I wasn't quite sure what this is, but if uh, I understand my French correctly, lay is French for milk. That's and what I thought as well. I was like, what, what, what's, what is that? <laughs> well, grenadine is like a syrup, right? Yeah. But I thought it was pretty vile. I'm, I'm going to do a little live research on the air and see if it, uh, if it pops up, okay? Mm-hmm. All right, so lay grenadine. Looks like it is a cocktail. A milk it's cocktail? It's made by... <laughs> yep. It's made by... Uh, uh, it's for children. Uh, it's just a mixture of grenadine and milk, which sounds absolutely disgusting. I don't know if any of our audience members have had uh, grenadine before, but it's a very sickly sweet syrup. Oh, gross. Um, and uh, I don't know if, if, if you've ever had a Shirley Temple or a Roy Rogers, that's what they use. I have not. Um, it's just like a sweet red syrup. We um, should have been drinking this while we were dry. <laughs> that should have been the substitute signature drink. <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't get the, to that point yet. So no. <laughs> Maybe, you know how last time we had the, uh, well, what did we have at the end for uh, Odds On? For Mooth. Yeah, maybe we should have way <laughs> credit. We should have a uh, lay grenadine for. Oh God! <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> we should we should do that. I'm gonna commit to us doing that. We we could have a grenadine. <laughs> oh God, this sounds so disgusting. <laughs> we could have a a white Russian uh, grenadine. <laughs> what you mean an alcoholic version? Yeah. Just to make it all the more stomach-wrenching. Uh, oh, God. No, I'm not committing to that. <laughs> Why not? No, I mean, it's either we choose an alcoholic drink that's mentioned in the novel that we haven't utilized so far, or we go with grenadine and milk, and it's not alcoholic. I, I don't think we can mix the two. We should go with grenadine and milk. Mm-hmm. We could have two different drinks, like a grenadine and milk and an alcoholic beverage. Just no, no, no. We should, we, should go with the, we should go with grenadine and milk. <laughs> I want you to commit to doing that right now. I, I mean, ha, hang on. I'm just going to research how much f- this fucking shit costs. Because I'm not going <laughs> to drink it. Yeah. Mm. Both tart and sweet. Oh, that's not so bad. All I right, mean, the stuff that I've had is really sweet, but, you know. It's pretty cheap here. I wonder if you can actually just buy... This is probably this, the kind of thing I was looking to actually buy. Hmm. Like when I was when I was trying to spice up my soda water, and I accidentally bought uh, Angostura Angostura bitters. 
I can buy it for uh, $3.49. So. Okay, so I found a bottle for $15. That sounds a bit expensive. Well, yeah. If that, if you feel comfortable making that economic commitment, then we can do that. I mean, yeah, I do. I think that's a better strategy than vermouth or something. <laughs> well, there's been no vermouth in this novel, right? So. I know. Or I mean, like something of equivalent revolting right. alcoholness. Um, anyway, at the end of the episode, but, it's the end. Next episode. Yeah. <laughs> Goodbye. Bye.